Part One, Chapter Ten B of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. During this time, the King, still hesitating as to what decision to make, was no longer willing to depart for Rambouillet. He consulted everybody. The Queen, equally undecided, could not make up her mind to this flight by night. My father-in-law went down on his knees to the King to implore him to put himself and his family in a place of security. The ministers would have remained to treat with the insurgents and the assembly. But the King, repeating continually, I do not wish to compromise anyone, thus lost a precious period of time. At one time it was thought that he was going to yield, and the order was given to prepare the carriages for departure. For two hours they had been ready, waiting in the Grande Curie. No one seemed to think that the people of Versailles would oppose the departure of the royal family. This, however, is what happened. The moment that the crowd of people from Paris and Versailles who were assembled on the Place d'Armes saw the gate of the court of the Grande Écurie opened, there was a unanimous cry of fear and fury, Le Roi s'en va! At the same moment, they rushed upon the carriages, cut the harness, and led the horses back, so that it was necessary to bring word to the chateau that the departure was impossible. My father-in-law and Monsieur de Saint-Priest then offered our carriages, which were hitched up outside the railing of the orangerie. But the King and the Queen rejected this proposition, and every one, discouraged, frightened, and fearing the greatest misfortunes, remained in silence and suspense. In this gallery, witness of all the splendours of the monarchy since Louis the Fourteenth, everyone walked up and down without exchanging a word. The Queen remained in her room with Madame Elizabeth, the sister of Louis the Sixteenth, and the wife of the Comte de Provence. The salon de jeu, hardly lighted, was full of women who were talking in low tones, some seated on stools and others upon the tables. As for myself, my agitation was so great that I could not remain for a moment in the same place. Every few minutes I went to the Eau de Boeuf, from which one could see those who entered and who came out of the King's apartment, in the hope of encountering my husband or my father-in-law, and of learning from them some news. The wait to me seemed intolerable. Finally, at midnight, my husband, who had been in the court for some time, came to announce that Monsieur de Lafayette had arrived before the gate of the Cour des Ministres with the National Guard of Paris, and requested to speak with the King. He added that a part of this guard, composed of the former Régiment des Gardes, was manifesting much impatience and that the least delay might lead to trouble and even danger. The King then said, Have Monsieur Lafayette come up. In an instant, Monsieur de la Tour du Pain was at the gate, and Monsieur de Lafayette, dismounting from his horse, and so fatigued that he was hardly able to stand upright, ascended to the King's apartment, accompanied by seven or eight persons, mostly from his staff. Very much moved, he addressed the king in these terms. Sire, 
je pensais qu'il valait mieux venir ici mourir au pied de votre majesté que de payer inutilement sur la place de grève to these words the king replied que veulent-ils donc lafayette said le peuple demande du pain et la garde désirait prendre ses anciens postes auprès de votre majesté the king said well let them do so these words were immediately reported to me my husband descended with monsieur de lafayette and the national guard of paris composed almost exclusively of the garde francaise resumed at once their former posts thus it happened that at every outer door where there had been a swiss guard a member of the guard of paris was posted and the rest made up of several hundred men were sent to bivouac as usual upon the place d'armes in a long building comprising several large halls constructed and painted in the form of tents during this time the people of paris had left the vicinity of the chateau and had dispersed in the city and the cabarets the women who had invaded the offices of the ministry were sleeping everywhere on the floor the principal leaders of the women had taken refuge in the hall of the national assembly where they remained during the night mingled with the deputies who were being relieved in order to keep up the permanent session i think that monsieur de lafayette after having established his posts of the national guard went to the assembly whence he returned to the chateau with madame de poix whose quarters were near the chapel in the gallery of that name as for monsieur d'estaing he had not appeared during the whole day and had remained in the cabinet of the king taking no more responsibility for the national guard of versailles than as if he had not been their commander-in-chief monsieur de la tour du pain had brought together a small number of the officers of his staff upon whom he thought he could count among whom was major berthier but the majority of the officers at this advanced hour had retired to their own quarters or to the houses of persons of their acquaintance the king to whom they had reported that the most absolute calm reigned at versailles which at that moment was really true dismissed all the persons who were still present in the eau de boeuf or in his cabinet the ushers came to the gallery to tell the ladies who were still there that the queen had retired the doors were closed the candles extinguished and my husband escorted us back to the apartment of my aunt which was situated above the gallery des princes at the top of the south wing of the chateau he did not wish to take us back to our rooms in the ministry on account of the women who were sleeping in the antechambers and who caused us great disgust after having placed us in security in this apartment he redescended to find his father and pray him to go to bed saying that he himself would watch during the night he went to his room to put on an overcoat over his uniform for the night was cold and damp then taking a round hat he descended to the court and proceeded to visit the posts he went through the courts the passages and the garden to assure himself that it was quiet everywhere he did not hear the least noise either around the chateau or in the adjacent streets the different posts were relieved with vigilance and the guard which was installed in the large tent upon the place d'armes and which had placed the cannon in the form of battery before the gate 
was performing its service with the same regularity as before the 14th of July. Such is the exact account of what passed at Versailles the 5th of October. Monsieur de la Tour du Pin, having heard nothing of a nature to lead him to fear the least disorder, returned after his nocturnal round to the office of the Minister of War in the south wing of the Cour des Ministres. However, instead of going to the cabinet or to his room, which, like my own, faced the Rue du Grand Commun, he remained in the dining-room and placed himself at a window, to have the air for fear of going to sleep. It is well to explain here that the Cour des Princes was then closed by a gate near which was stationed a garde du corps, for here was the first post of the guard of the king's person, a service which particularly devolved upon the garde du corps and the Saint Suisse. In the interior of this little court there was a passage which communicated with the corps royal. This had been arranged so as to enable the garde du corps who were stationed in the corps royal at the corner of the corps marbre, when the posts were changed, to go out by the gate in the middle of the Cour Royale, and re-enter by that of the Cour des Princes. It will be seen in a moment how necessary the knowledge of this passageway was to the assassins. Day was commencing to break. It was almost six o'clock, and the most profound silence reigned in the court. Monsieur de la Tour du Pain, leaning out of the window, thought he heard the steps of a great crowd of people, which seemed to ascend the romp that led to the Cour des Ministres from the Rue de la Surintendance. Then, to his great surprise, he saw a mob of miserable creatures enter by the gate, although it had been closed and locked. The key had been obtained by an act of treason. The crowd was armed with axes and sabres. At the same moment, my husband heard a gunshot. During the time he took to descend the stairway and to have the door of the ministry opened, the assassins had killed Monsieur de Valery, the garde du corps posted at the gate of the Cour des Princes, and had rushed through the passage of which I have just spoken to fall upon the Cour de Garde de Cour Royale. Some of the crowd, who were not more than two hundred in number, rushed to the marble staircase, while another part hurled themselves upon the garde du corps whom his comrades had abandoned without defence. This unfortunate man, after having fired one shot, with which he killed the nearest of his assailants, was immediately cut down by the others. This task accomplished, the invaders rushed to rejoin the other part of the band, which at this moment had forced aside the guard of the Saint Suisse, posted at the top of the marble staircase. The proof that no extra precautions had been taken is found in the fact that the assassins arrived at the top of the staircase, and certainly guided by someone who knew the route to follow, turned into the Queen's guardroom and fell suddenly upon the only guard who was posted in this place. This guard rushed to the door of the Queen's bedchamber, which was closed on the inside, and having rapped several times with the cross of his mousqueton, he cried, Madame, save yourself! They are coming to kill you. Then, resolved to sell his life dearly, he placed his back against the door, discharged his mousqueton, and defended himself by his sabre. 
but was quickly cut down by these miserable creatures who fortunately had no firearms. He fell against the door, and his body hindered the assassins from breaking it in. His body was pushed aside into the embrasure of the window, which saved his life. During this time my sister-in-law and I were sleeping in one of the apartments of my aunt, Madame Denin. My fatigue was so great that my sister-in-law had considerable trouble in awakening me. As neither of us was undressed, we both rushed to the room of my aunt, which looked out upon the park, and where she was unable to hear anything. Her fright was equal to our own. We immediately called our servants. Before they were awakened, my good and devoted Marguerite came running to us. Pale as death, and tumbling upon the first chair, she cried, Ah, oh, mon Dieu, nous allons tous être massacrés. This exclamation was far from reassuring us. Marguerite stated that she had left her room with the intention of coming to ascertain whether I had need of her services, but in descending the staircase, she had discovered a large number of very ordinary people, and seen arriving a monsieur, with boots covered with mud and a whip in his hand, who was no other than the Duc d'Orléans, whom she recognised perfectly as she had often seen him. Furthermore, that these miserable creatures surrounded him and showed their joy at seeing him by crying, Vive notre roi d'Orléans! Marguerite had hardly finished this moving recital when my husband arrived. He told us that on seeing the assassins penetrate into the Cour Royale, he had immediately rushed to the Grand Garde stationed upon the Place d'Armes to have the drums beat the alarm. We also learned from him that the Queen had been able to save herself by going to the King's apartment through a little passage arranged under the room known as the Eau de Boeuf, which formed the means of communication between her bedroom and that of the King. He persuaded us to leave my aunt's apartment, which was too near in his opinion to those of the King and Queen, and counselled us to rejoin Madame de Simene, who was lodged near the Orangerie. The Abbe de Damas came to find us and conduct us there. At the end of two hours, which seemed to me centuries, my husband sent a valet de chambre to inform me that they were leading the King and Queen to Paris that the ministers, the administration and the National Assembly were quitting Versailles, where he himself had the order to remain, to save the chateau from pillage after the departure of the King. He added that for this purpose they were leaving him a Swiss battalion, the National Guard of Versailles, of which the Commander-in-Chief, Monsieur d'Estaing, had sent in his resignation, and a battalion of the National Guard of Paris, for the moment he forbade me absolutely to issue from my refuge. I stayed alone for several hours, as my aunt had gone to Madame de Poix, who was also leaving for Paris, and my sister-in-law had left me to go in search of her children and her husband. He had just arrived from Enoncourt, and wished to have her leave at once for the country. I do not think that I ever in my life passed hours more cruel than those of this morning. The death cries by which I had been awakened still resounded in my ears. The least noise made me tremble. My imagination conjured up all the dangers which my husband could run. My maid Marguerite, who could have encouraged me, was also absent. 
she had returned to the ministry to assist my servants in packing our effects, which were to go to Paris by the wagons of my father-in-law. About three o'clock, Madame Denine returned to look for me, and announced that the sad cortege had set out for Paris, the carriage of the king preceded by the heads of the garde du corps, which their assassins were carrying on the ends of their pikes. In getting into his carriage, Louis the Sixteenth had said to Monsieur de la Tour du Pin, Vous restez maître ici. Tâchez de me sauver, mon pauvre Versailles. This injunction was equivalent to an order, which he was firmly resolved to obey. He took measures to carry out this order with the commander of the battalion of the National Guard of Paris, who had been left with him, a man who was very determined, and who showed the best good will. This was Santerre. I left my refuge with my aunt and returned to the ministry. A frightful solitude then reigned at Versailles. The only noise that was heard in the chateau was that of the doors, the blinds, and the window shutters, which were being closed for the first time since the reign of Louis the Fourteenth. My husband made all arrangements for the defence of the chateau, being convinced that as soon as night arrived, the strange and sinister figures which he saw roaming around the streets and the courts would come together to pillage the chateau. Alarmed for my safety, in view of the disorder which he foresaw, he insisted that I should leave with my aunt. We were not willing to go to Paris, because of the fear that the gates would be closed upon us, and that I would find myself separated from my husband without the power of rejoining him. My wish would have been to remain at Versailles, as near to my husband. I had no fear. But he said that my presence would paralyzed the efforts which it was his duty to make to show himself worthy of the king's confidence. Finally, he persuaded me to set out for Saint-Germain, and to await events in the apartment of Monsieur de Lally at the Chateau. This apartment was that of my family, which my great-aunt Mademoiselle Dillon had left him entirely furnished. We made the trip in a wretched carriole, my aunt and I, accompanied by a femme de chambre originally from Saint-Germain. The horses and carriages of my father-in-law had been sent to Paris, and it was impossible to find at Versailles any other means of transport, no matter what sum was offered. The trip took us three long hours. End of chapter 10b of part 1